What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today, on episode 115, we're wrapping up our read of Robert Jackson Bennett's Divine Cities trilogy with part two of City of Miracles. And before Drew blows our minds with how he manages to sum everything up like this in a reasonable running time, I am first going to remind you, all of you, that if you enjoy listening to a couple of nerds geek out over epic books and epic beers and have epic beers while talking about epic books, feel free to check out our Patreon page. You know, you can get access to all kinds of fun stuff, like advanced access to our episodes, exclusive uh, access to monthly bonus episodes, and even the chance to make us read a book of your choice if you want somewhere down the line. We do short fiction released by Drew and myself every month. We have a monthly newsletter. Just check it out if it's, uh, you know, if you think it's kind of your style. So, now, Drew, bringing this back to City of Miracles, kick us off. Tell us how this series ended. Well, in typical Divine Cities fashion, one heck of a lot of stuff happened in the second half of this book, and it happened in a hurry. Sigrid, after returning to Ivanya's ranch convinces Ivanya and Tati that they must head to Bulakov to meet with Malwina at the bridge over the Solda. To get there, however, they need to escape Mishra and her agents, who are watching the routes out of Ahanashtan. When Tati realizes that they're being watched and their train car will get destroyed, they switch plans fast and purchase a private car on the Aerotram. Mishra pulls her rank and commandeers the car behind them, planning to use the new explosive launcher to destroy their car in the middle of a snowstorm. Sigrid, with the help of Ivanya, foils the plan. But just as Sigrid is about to kill Mishra, Mishra eats the bead and becomes Silence, the Seneschal of Nokov. Sigrid tricks her, and she falls from the Aerotram. After arriving in Bulakov, Sigrid and Ivanya spend a night together, before Sigrid meets with Malwina. Here, the hiding place of the Divine Children is revealed, as well as the continued existence of Shara, who did die, but was preserved as a moment of the past by Malwina. Sigrid inadvertently leads Nokov to the dream place of Tavan, where Shara and the children are hiding, though Sigrid is busy meeting with none other than Olvos. Olvos reveals to Sigrid that he's merged with a miracle, and it is extraordinarily difficult for him to die because he's basically torturing himself to become a walking weapon. Nokov breaks into the dream place and devours Tavan and many of the children, though Tati has another premonition and, with the help of Malwina and Ivanya, saves Shara and a few of the children. Nokov, newly empowered, confronts and kills Olvos before setting his sights on Bulakov and the rest of the world. While he is constructing his staircase to the sky, Sigrid, Tati, and Ivanya take down Silence. Malwina and the children head off Nokov. Nokov kills all the children but Malwina, and Shara takes action. With Sigrid pinned to a wall by Silence's spear, Shara takes his knife and calls down Nokov, sacrificing herself. Tati, newly awakened as Alvos after Shara's death, reveals that she is the force of the future, split off from Malwina, or Tulvos, by the divinities. They reconnect and merge into Sempros, divinity of time, destroying Nokov and preparing to destroy all of creation in turn. Sigrid makes one big push, though, and ascends the stairs to confront Sempros. He convinces them away from their path of destruction. Sempros casts away most of her divine power, dispersing it throughout the continent, Sapur, and the Drailing Shores. With Mulagesh leading the way into a new age, Sigrid, Tati, and Ivanya retire to the Drailing Shores. In the closing scene, Sigrid follows Tati to the seaside to watch her play with her new friends, and, finally at peace, dies in the place he loved. How did you do that? It, like, 
I thought you were going to be 10 minutes on this one. Wow. Well, turns out that uh, when I take the time to actually write up uh, an intro instead of just winging it, uh, the fact that I have some experience writing stories myself comes through a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No, I, I, I feel really good that we read the entirety of this series. I'm so glad that we left this oh. one like right up for our next project after Illuminate. It was a great change up. It's still high quality stuff. You know, I, I can't say I'm entirely satisfied with the ending, but that doesn't take away from the series as a whole. Just being a great series that I am going to be recommending for years to come, I think. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> as someone who reads a lot of similar styles to Bennett's, like Sanderson, for example, I think I was hoping for a little more linking back to the original lore and less of the let's just continue expanding sort of lore. I was really count like coming out of book one, thinking that maybe we're going to see some more of Ahanus or Talhavris or at least since they're you know they're dead, more of their particular machinations. You know, particularly with Talhavris, he was like their leader. I think I remember re- like learning the Builder, first among equals, wasn't he? Like, so I I, I learned something uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, okay. City of Stairs was originally written as a standalone. He did not have plans for a trilogy okay, when he that, wrote that, that book. That explains a little more, yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and apparently, you know, he, he had the, a, a reasonable amount of success, but not a ton of success with City of Stairs. Uh, and, you know, he was talking with his agent or his editor, I don't remember uh, which, and, you know, like what he's going to work on next. And must have been must have been his agent. And his agent was like, uh, you, need to, you need to write more in this world. And he, and so he was like, okay, well, I, I guess I can do that. And he sat down to write City of Blades, and apparently City of Blades was originally going to be from a completely different character's point of view, not Mulagash. And oh. Rob, if you remember in City of Blades, you did some research on it, and, and that he said in an interview that he cut out um, yes, yes. about 40,000 words from the middle of the book. All of that was this other character, apparently. This character no longer exists. Oh. Uh, and and he decided, you know what, this works so much better from Mulagesh's point of view. So, uh, we we got a much more, like, organic progression of this series than something like Brandon Sanderson writing The Cosmere, where he sits down and he's okay. got notes and a wiki and a whole outline <laughs> and, and the end game in mind already. None of that existed when he wrote City of Stairs. And that's really fascinating to me. Because I think he still did a good job of tying back to things he established in City of Stairs. But he didn't rely on foreshadowing from the beginning. Each book is very self-contained. They are. Yeah, they really are. I was, I don't know, I was just, there's a couple of like, divinities that <clears throat> we, I don't think we, like, we got enough of. At least I didn't get enough of to be, in to- <laughs> to be totally satisfied. That particularly, again, I'll mention it, Tel Havris, like... I thought that since he's dead, you know, like his power or his authority in some way would be like series altering. Maybe he had some plans, some machinations that he put in place before he died. I thought that was going to take up coming out of book two. I thought a lot of that was going to take up this book or Ahanas, you know, but it just it kind of seems like after Tal Havras, like after his involvement with the, the maiming of his daughter, you know, Sempros, it just kind of faded out. <laughs> of anything resembling even like well he was dead way. so yeah i know i just like <laughs> oh really like it's 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 true like just dead and i was like god i i don't know i was hoping just to, to find out some more juicy secrets about him or something but hmm. you like eh, didn't get that but enough about what i what you know i expected it's nowhere near as fun as what we weren't expecting what about you man i have a few things that took me by surprise 
especially considering we had a lot of, you know, uh, predictions that did come right. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I what took you by surprise? Nailed, and then I'll give you uh, Tati and Mawina. <laughs> I I absolutely. No, I nailed that prediction last week. Oh, okay. Week. Yeah, I was asking yeah, what took I, you by surprise. Yeah, we nailed a lot of predictions. Yeah, in, in our episode last week, I you, you mentioned how you thought um, Nokov was the divine child who got maimed. And I was like, oh, that oh, surprises boy. me. Because I was like, I, I was going to ask you if you thought it was going to be Mawina or Sigrid. And then as we were talking, I was like, wait, no. Tati has the dreams. She's totally the future. They, like, they maimed a time divine child and split it in two because uh, and out and and that was very gratifying to read <laughs> um yeah no, like i i my prediction specifically was that they were both sisters or twins and that one has one side and one has the other and there was yeah. one moment where that was very specifically put forward and it was like yes this is what happened they are they must be sisters and i was like yes i wrote down that note i was like yes but then turns out a little later after that no i wasn't quite right and i saw that <laughs> i laughed and i was like drew you cheek devil well done nice no, name I, I do want to talk about some some style things with the end and this this is generally speaking present throughout all of Bennett's books that we've read uh, he has a lot in common in style with Brandon Sanderson but he also has some different strengths and one of one of those things is that he doesn't have the same flair for spectacle I think as Sanderson does it's not to say Bennett doesn't you know, have spectacle in his books. Oh, yeah. But he doesn't rely on big battles or um, action set pieces in his climaxes. His climaxes are much more about the characters and, and the internal conflicts. And he does a really good job of combining those with the the large scale. I mean, you know, we, we look at the end of this. What is the climax of this book? It's Sigrid climbing the stairs and convincing Sempros not to destroy reality. If we, you know, if we look at the climax of City of Blades, what is it? It's Mulagesh figuring out her trauma and taking up the mantle of Vortia. If we look at the climax of City of Stairs, what is it? It's Shara taking the Philosopher's Stone and having her confrontation with, uh, with the Zhukov, um, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Kolkhan, uh, hybrid and convincing. It's very intensely personal things. There's spectacle around it, but it's more about the, the internal moments. And that isn't, so much how Brandon Sanderson writes. He does, I mean, he. it's not to say, again, it's not to say he doesn't have internal conflict climaxes, but they're always, to me at least, overshadowed by these massive fight scenes or battles. You know, you think of uh, the tower at the end of The Way of Kings or... I was uh, just going to say, no, the, one, the Way of Kings is the one that I don't think fits that old... Uh, you know, or or things you know, without going into too much spoilers, the the end of words of uh, words of radiance, uh, or the end of rhythm of war, where where there are there are personal character growth moments, but they're surrounded by big old battles, and the battles take up much more page space than the personal oh, moments yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Here, the battles happening in the background, but the actual words on the page are about 
the characters and what's going on inside them. And I think that's a, a key difference. And, and it's the same in, um, in Foundryside and Shorefall. Again, I don't want to get into spoilers, but, but there are similar things occurring there where the climaxes are much more about what's going on inside the characters than it is about any kind of uh, battle or, or duel or action scene. So while I still think, you know, this is absolutely, you know, something fans of Brandon Sanderson should be reading. Uh, and, and yeah, at the same time, I think fans of the Divine Cities uh, and fans of Foundryside Shorefall, if they haven't read Brandon Sanderson, they probably should check him out. But that's not to say that they're the same. Bennett no. and Sanderson have different uh, strengths and different proclivities. Um and, and this book really, really hammered that home for me uh, with this climax. This was an intensely personal climax. It was. It was. It was what I, it, the, like, the, the personal nature of it, it was kind of right in line with what I was expecting, what I was hoping for, I should say. And he, he absolutely landed it. Um, I would have preferred to have a little more information, but that's just a very subjective thing it's just the kind of reader i am the landing was 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 executed well and it yeah, was everything that i had hoped it was going to be yeah you've always liked the lore and the world building of things yes, i mean yes. we go back to the black company where it was <laughs> the things that really hooked you in were when the world expanded and we got more right. answers about how this world works and what's going on yeah, I particularly so. appreciate it when, when we're getting answers to questions that we had. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of getting suddenly two or three times as many questions as I had before right at the end of the series. And that kind of happened a bit in here for me with a lot of uh, lengthy exposition during the climax and a lot of, I don't know, it, a lot of magical workings that worked out pretty well and just like kind of flimsy explanations and justifications for a lot of things that happened in the future i god i feel like i'm complaining too much it was still an amazing <laughs> book i wish i want to go on to to, to to complimenting i'll save my i have one little two-minute rant of bitching but i'll say that for the end of my style point i want to talk more 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 positive um the writing sentence by sentence level Definitely feels a lot more improved. You know, it, yes. it's, it's more confident. It's more experienced than it was in City of Stairs. And even for a large portion of City of Miracles. So, if I'm being honest, I thought there were a couple of particular shining moments in City of Miracles that were a little more bright than anything I saw in this book. With the possible exception of the Ascension of Sempros. That was, oh my god, that was awesome. But, yeah, you know, sentence by sentence level, it was completely awesome. Yeah, there were some beautiful passages that I will be uh, talking about and reading a little later on. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just realized, I just remember there was one descriptor, though, that started to feel... Actually, there was a couple of descriptors that started to feel a little awkward after several uses. I'll, uh, did you, I'll just throw them out at you, see if you noticed them. Um, first time, this is a smaller one, but when Sigrid's first having his encounter with the Seneschal, with Silence, when we first meet Silence as an entity. We got this descriptor a few times in the same scene. Uh, like three or four times in one scene, something happened silently, or it changed in silence, or however it happened. And I was like, okay, we get it. It's very quiet. You, you, you said it four times now on, a, on one page. <laughs> like, yeah. Did you notice any moments like that? I mean, yes, but it didn't really bother me too much. <clears throat> like, uh, I, I think he wanted it to feel oppressive. You know, like that this, 
aesthetic reason for it perhaps yeah like like the way um i've never personally experienced it but you know there's those like um acoustic rooms that like yeah the completely sound and it's supposedly like oppressively silent where it's it's oh sure for your sanity it's not safe for you to be in there for more than like whatever like 20 or 30 minutes or something like that um and so i kind of got that impression that he was just really trying to hammer home that point of like this is unsettling. This is yeah. messing with the characters. And I'm glad that you brought the, the potential for an aesthetic reason for that. <clears throat> because my next one was a lot more, um, uh, let's say, ubiquitous. And maybe this is just some aesthetic reason that I'm not cultured enough to understand. This could absolutely very well be me. It's, it's likely that, actually. But uh, the word, okay, so the, the next word that I noticed used constantly, all the time, and a lot of, a lot of times really, really close together to the point where it felt awkward, the word queer. Seem to be Bennett's favorite word in this book. It's a hmm. it's a great descriptor. I think I can see how it'd be convenient to fall back on. And I will admit he did use that descriptor at first when he was talking about Malwina's eyes, yes, um, her queerly colored eyes. But I think um, it, I was imagining that if there's any descriptor you put towards a unique aspect of someone's description like this, you might subconsciously regulate your use of that same word otherwise, like otherwhere in the text. Or elsewhere in the text, I should say. And I'm glad I chose this book to actually make the switch from my phone back to the e-reader because it was actually very simple for me to search for the number of instances for use of any word that I want to check out. So, queer yeah. or queerly was used 22 times yes. in this book. To uh, describe so... the color of someone's eyes, the quality of a particular sound, the feeling of a particular atmosphere. It was about once every 20 pages or something on average. So I find this interesting because I, I just looked it up as well. And my version, my ebook, is the entire collected trilogy. It oh, yeah. is queer or queerly is used 42 times total in the whole trilogy. Over half were in this book. Yeah. I didn't even realize it was used that much previously yeah it looks like looks like one two three four five six times in the first book and then 14 times in the second and 22 in the third yeah yeah yeah, like i I was just like okay because i mean i don't know i just when when certain things i have said this before i'm just realizing it now when i hear certain words again and again and again or certain sounds again and again and again it's like it's like oh, a drop of water in a corner it starts to drive me nuts i can't filter it out with i sure. have that problem with a with a um, scott lynch book something else too i had a problem with early on this podcast in a different episode but yeah i just i repetitive language starts to irk me unless you get like for example, the the passages from uh, Bennett here where he goes on about thousands, thousands of this and thousands of that and thousands of battles under thousands of skies. For some reason, that doesn't bother me. Huh. It feels more intentional. But something like this feels kind of stumbling and accidental at times where it's just like, okay, I get that that you like <laughs> to use, you know, a specific uh, word. But This is, this is going to be interesting to see what you think uh, in a couple of weeks when we start the gap cycle because... Uh, <laughs> really? Because Donaldson, this is like a, a pretty infamous thing with him where people have joked that you can tell when he discovered a new word because <laughs> oh, yeah. there will be a word he never used before in the series and then suddenly he uses it, uses it like a dozen times in one book. Yeah. Oh, um, God. That's how I felt about queer or queerly in this book. I was like, okay. Um, after like the 22nd time, I was like, oh, I think it was probably like the 15th or 20th time. I was starting to roll my eyes. I was going, okay, the, the sound doesn't need to be queer as well. 
all the the emotion that he's feeling doesn't need to be queer as well. Why does everything have to be queer all of a sudden? Why why don't you ever have something Strange that's just or, odd or, or, yeah. <laughs> or off-putting or something like that? Something that's disconcerting. <laughs> it's like you vary up your language, man. I, I not mm-hmm. in my position. I'm not going to tell Bennett how to write a book. I'm not going to do that. That's not my <laughs> it's not my MO. These are just things that I noticed. I'm just a dude with some opinions. Uh, yeah, so sticking with style, I have a couple yes. more um, uh, kind of comparison points to the earlier books in the series. I brought okay. up with City of Stairs how there was this massively long denouement chapter. It was like 33 yeah, was, yeah. pages or something like that. The denouement chapter in this is much shorter. I think it was only like 18 or 19. Um, and and that felt like the right length. Uh, it, it felt like a good epilogue for an entire series. Uh, he, he still, you know, has longer chapters in general in this book. The, I mean, there were only what, 19 total in this 18, 16, excuse me. Yeah. So still long chapters. Um, but it was, I think a little more evenly distributed. Uh, there weren't like a couple of just mondo chapters the way there, uh, there were in, in the first book. And the pacing, because of that, felt tighter to me. Uh, I I really liked the pace of this book in general. The second half was just breakneck. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, we we hit the ground with chapter ten, a road in the air, and you know, right off the bat, we have probably the best spectacle scene in the whole book with the the whole you know fight on the era tram. And, yeah. you know, great, great stuff. You know, another one of those moments where I'm like, man, this this series would make some great movies. <laughs> um, yeah, agreed. But, yeah, overall, I thought the pace was handled very well in this book. Uh, that was another kind of mark of improvement as the series went on. Yeah, I felt more consistent, that's for sure. Um, like it, it, it was, it was faster, but it wasn't really uh, faltering. There were there weren't as many slower moments. Um, and what I, I think is obviously pretty appropriate for the last book of a trilogy. You know, absolutely yeah, nothing like and that. I think, I prefer it that way. I think it's important to note how, like, there were slower moments in the second half, but they don't feel slow because of some, you know what I was talking about earlier with. So much of the importance in plot and movement is internalized with his characters. It's about what's going on inside them. That when you slow down the action scenes to get scenes like Sigrid and Ivanya on the balcony and then, you know, going to bed together, that that's a major slowdown point after a whole chapter of action on the arrow tram, but it doesn't feel slow. Because it's character movement. Yeah, the, the development moves, but it's still there. Yeah, and, and this is this ties back to one of the things that I will, you know, a hill I will die on with Elantris by Brandon Sanderson. Where people say that book is slow. It's not slow. It moves very, very fast. But what moves fast is the internal character conflicts and development. But a lot of those people are going to that book after having read 
Mistborn or Stormlight or, you know, the Reckoners or something where they're used to tons of action everywhere and, and these spectacle battle scenes and all that. And there just isn't much of that in Elantra. So like, oh, well, the, the book's slow and boring. And I'm like, no, the book moves very quickly, but it's a different kind of book. And here, this is, again, like a different kind of book from something that relies on constant action scenes to, to move it along. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was well done. <clears throat> I, I, I think I did the entire second half in two sessions, so. Uh, I did as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty breakneck. <laughs> I, I'll be honest, when I was writing my notes here, I, go, I went back to my notes, you know, about an hour before the podcast, and I was opening my phone note file, and I was just organizing what I wanted to say, so obviously I started at the, at the beginning of my notes for this week with what would have been chapter 10, and I went, oh, oh, that's right. The arrow tram sequence wasn't this part, just because it was just so much happened afterward that that part of my brain just 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 shifted that back into the log of the first half. But it totally wasn't. It's so much happening in the second half of this book. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to get okay. I want to get my two minute rant out of the way, and this will be about what I've been ranting about before. It's nothing new. It's the the predictability okay. of what what was happening, what was coming. Um, let's see here. Oh, I lost my notes. Sorry, I went down a page here. Uh, Okay, so I'm coming out of this book with the same impression I had at the beginning of the series and halfway through the series. Bennett is many things. He's a great world builder. He's an entertaining plotter. He's a gorgeous wordsmith. He's a fantastic character creator. One thing he's not is always subtle in any way (laughs) that I can find uh, about when he's trying to hide things in front of your nose. He's subtle about other things, but when he's trying to hide something directly in front of you, he's not subtle about it. Some authors are very, very, you know, rarely gifted that way. We were just talking about Sanderson. We always bring Sanderson up. Great example. He's amazing at that. Um, And if you're a reader like me, who drives themselves occasionally a little insane with attention to every little detail in search of clues that usually aren't there... But we spend half of a book or a whole book or even a trilogy dancing around something that tease for me just becomes a little obnoxious and then it becomes fear infuriating and then exasperating. So the first book, Drew, Sigrid, being the lost trailing prince. We nailed that. Uh, book two, everything about Vortjastani afterlife. That was on you. you. You got that one. And the properties and magic behind the Thena- uh, Yeah, Thanatiskite. That was it. You know, the fact that, that the Thanatoskite was what was left of the Vortyashatani soul-bearing swords, we nailed it. And here in book three, Tatyana being the divine child of the future and the other half of a whole, as you also predicted. You know, check. Shara's totally death, totally not being a death. She's actually still alive and she still has an important part to play. Check. You know, we got it. Uh, you nailed it also that the other player, the... the uh, the other entity, the, 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 the maimed child, who is not... Nokov. I was like, God damn, Drew, you nailed it again, you clever bastard. The fact that it's predictable isn't alone something to condemn for me, and again, this is subjective. It was the audacity of giving us so much information and then trying to hide it anyway. I felt that there were certain parts of this series that read like song, they, like like the epigraphs in book one, that stellar description of Pangui as well that I was going on about in that book. The heart-ripping ending of City of Miracles. Signe's funeral and love, love, defiant love. And in this book, Ascension of Sempros, so many amazing moments. But some of the mysteries feel like I'm playing hide and seek with a toddler who just tries to hide behind a clear window 
or right under a transparent glass table. I'm just stuck here like an asshole going, oh, I wonder where he is. You know, I wonder what's going to happen. And I have to play this game and pretend that just it. Mm, I'm going to shut up. So, That's it. I'm going to yeah, leave it there. You, I you, don't ahead. have as much of a problem as you do with with this. Um, like my biggest issue with predictability came in Foundry side. And if you know if uh, you haven't listened to that episode, uh, go back and check that out. That was one of our earliest episodes, maybe episode twenty five, yeah, twenty five, twenty six, something like that. Um, and the biggest difference, and the reason I don't have much of a problem with it in this series, is that yes, we predicted a lot of things, but a lot of the time, what we predicted, especially what I predicted. I got the first step. And and then there would be added wrinkles to it that I did not predict. Like this time around. You know, I was talking about how I nailed the prediction. Yeah, this this too dangerous divine child who got maimed actually got split into two daughters of time, so to speak. I did not predict that she would ultimately be the antagonist for the climax. You know, like there's there's an added wrinkle to things, um, and and in Foundry side there wasn't any kind of added wrinkle. That's why it was such a problem for me. I was like, I I basically could have just stopped reading that book halfway through, and I would have known what happened at the end of it. In this, that wasn't the case, and it was also like. Um, I, I thought he he hid things better in this. Uh, yes, it was predictable, but it like or in the sense that I predicted some things correctly, but I had to work at it. In Foundry Side, I didn't have to work at it. I didn't have to like scrutinize every little detail to figure things out. It was like it it felt very telegraphed. In this, it was like no. Uh, just because I theorize and think the way I do, I was able to predict some of the things that happened at the end of this book. And I will point out, when we get to our uh, final draft here, I had planned all along to open a beer uh, for the end of this, and I still opened it, you know, because <laughs> let's have fun. But uh, but I'm opening two beers because the beer that I was planning on doing did not end up being as thematically appropriate as I thought it was going to be. Oh, I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I finished the book. I was like, well, that surprised me. I thought we were going to go in a different direction with that climax, you know? Hmm. So I like, I get where you're coming from on it, but I do not have nearly as much of a problem with, with predictability in this series as you do. Yeah, I'm just a little bit neurotic about it. This is a very personal thing. I'm not gonna. I would never use this as a as a reason to not recommend this book to somebody. And as I will go on later, I will constantly be recommending this series to to you know someone who wants a book recommendation. Like this is going to be near the damn near the very top of of that list. The predictability thing was a little off putting for me, but I understand. <laughs> I mean, I have context for that. I've I've done a few of these episodes at this point. I know that uh, this is just me. This is, is definitely just me. Uh, I was going to say something too. Oh, I also remembered while you we were, we were talking there, another thing, just to, to drive that point home again, how predictable book two was, for example, Rado Smolisk. I totally called that one too. 
I knew she mm-hmm. was going to be behind everything. I, I knew it. I just I was so confident coming out of that first half, and then it happened. But there was still the revelation, the the whole who's it going to be kind of thing. Now I'm just going, oh, God, I'm going to pre- keep doing this dance then. But... <laughs> definitely not one of the outstanding parts of this book this is these are I'm, I'm i have so much to to compliment the guy on coming here you'll see that i need to find things to bitch about just to well, try and balance it just to kind of come worry. off as you're not remotely. gonna you're not gonna have any problem with predictability in the gap cycle and Sweet. if you if you predict some things in the gap cycle i will shake your hand personally because well, okay so the question is, a- is are they are they subtly foretold or or foreshadowed like is there still context are the pieces there to put together because in a certain way yeah and it's hard to put together i am really excited for that but uh but yeah let's uh before we move on to characters entirely and this isn't quite a uh a style point but just more of an overall point um what was your favorite book in this trilogy oh uh city of blades the ending oh overall this one Overall, this one, but I think the ending of City of Blades really ripped my heart out in a way that this one approached, but did differently. I still, I didn't have that catatonic feeling coming out of this one as I did coming out of City of Blades with Signe's funeral. Yeah, so City of Blades was, I I think, also my favorite, but City of Miracles is very close. Um for, for a similar reason, you know, like you said, it has a bittersweet ending, the kind of ending I love, but it didn't quite reach the same impact as uh, the end of City of Blades with Signe's death and funeral and mm-hmm. and the utter destruction of Sigrid, basically. I, I would say that my I, my favorite of the three is City of Miracles, is this one. But if you give me one moment to pick that stands out above all the others, that one would come out of the end of book two. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, let's move on to characters. Let's talk okay. about let's talk about some Sigrid. Uh, let's talk about my man Sigrid. Okay. I have to say, I am obviously very pleased with how Sigrid's journey ended. I mean, I still wish, like I said in, in a previous episode, that he'd had his time to enjoy his hard-earned victory, if you want to call it that, a little more. And in hindsight, what we learned about the source of all his misfortune, um, <laughs> the brand on his hand, the miracle that hides within him, you know, my previous bitching about Sigrid's rotten life at every turn seems a little amusing now, doesn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sigrid, um, he really goes through the ringer. Uh, I still think he hit his his nadir in City of Blades. Uh, and that's another reason why I think City of Miracles doesn't quite reach um, the same peak uh, as, as City of Blades in terms of quality. But uh, he still goes through quite a lot in this. And I, I like how this book, as... Like when when you're taking the whole trilogy as a whole, like as a, a single entity, um, it follows that uh, that sort of character arc where the first book Sigrid starts up high, and then he drops, and he hits his low in the second book, and then the third book is once again rising, learning, growing as a person. Um, you know, of course there are. There are little little stumbles here and there for him, but overall, this is a really hopeful book. 
and and I I liked that for him. He was a character oh, yeah. left at the end of City of Blades without hope. You know. So yeah. Uh, that that helped kind of offset. You know, I, I talked about it so much in the City of Blades episodes. The the atmosphere of that book is dark. It's grim, it's dreary, it's gray. It's gray, gray, gray. This book is not anywhere near as dark. It is much more hopeful. Uh, the kind of the the moral of it, if you could say it has a moral, is one of you know of hope ultimately. You know where you can't just fix everything magically, but humanity can and will go on, and humanity can and will grow. You know. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was really expanded from such an early point in the series as a character, and at that early point in the series, I did not see it coming. Honestly, straight out of part one of book one, would not have guessed it. I knew he was going to be important, but I had no idea that he was going to be absolutely vital in this kind of way. I loved the 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 arc. I loved the character. I thought it was just brilliant work. Um, his journey to do more than avenge Shara, you know, but to to write whatever wrongs he can before his time runs out, and then to combine those two goals by deciding to love what Shara loved and to fight for what she fought for. It's it's just amazing. You know, his relationship with Tatiana is so wholesome. They were better for one another than each of them (laughs) deserved uh, respectively. And it was amazing. I love that Sigrid got his chance to do things right and that even if he was hallucinating or not, that he had Signe with him there at the end, he had a death that was worthy of what he had earned. It was amazing. Yeah, it, it really was. It was um, it was a great ending. Man, it was a great ending. Yeah. Just that lot. I knew I knew what was coming when he told Signe oh Signe, listen to me. Wow, Freudian slipped there. When he told Tatiana to to run along the beach. And mm-hmm. he said something about something along the lines of that's exactly the kind of site that this needs. That's exactly what this beach needs right now. I was yeah. like, Oh no, oh no. But yeah, and he wasn't divine after all. Himself wasn't divine. Yeah, what? he was like, like what the pseudo fuck? divine. <laughs> he just stained, for lack of a better term, by the divine. I just, I'd have to say, I did not see that one coming, and I am glad. In again, in my hindsight, that that sort of arrogant presumption that that I had there was taking it was taking too much for granted. I was wrong, and I will not complain. I am glad that he subverted that because I thought that was the most obvious telegraphed thing I had ever read in my life and he still managed like i would have put a hundred dollars to one coming out of book one (laughs) that he was divine of blood i cannot believe that he managed to pull that little twist at the end there and it it didn't feel like a cheat yeah that was really good um yeah i mean i was just looking back through my notes uh you know the highlighted stuff and i i saw um you know, back in chapter nine where I highlighted something and I was like, so we all agree that Sigurd is a divine child, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have like four or five different points where I was I actually, I'm being very diplomatic right now. I had full caps, screaming, repetitive letters in my notes <laughs> about, oh my God, we are playing this fucking game again. Like I was really, I'm, I'm, I just thought like, I'm a very instinctual, you know, knee-jerk reaction kind of guy. That's why I need to spend two hours every episode beforehand writing out my notes and changing how I want to say things. <laughs> but 
Yeah, I, I was so exasperated by what I thought was going to be the biggest, most mm. obvious, and lame reveal of all time, and it was not. I'm glad yeah. that I get the chance now to say I was being a fool. <laughs> so, that's everything I have to say about Sigrid. I just, I love where he ended up. So, I mean, I just, I can't think of anything that I would want changed. No, I want, I still want him to, to see him fishing with his legs up out of fire at nighttime with a book <laughs> in his lap. I wish we had seen something like that, but this is about as good as I could have hoped for otherwise. And it was better in some ways than obviously what I wanted, so... Very well done, Bennett. Well played, good man. Yeah. Now let's... Shara? Yeah, let's talk about Shara. Okay. I'll let you start this time, since you're such a big fan of Shara. Yeah. Uh, she is another character who grew quite a lot from, you know, who she was in the first book. And, of of course, you know, the Shara we got here isn't quite Shara. You know, it's Shara from a moment in time. Pseudo-Shara. But even sure. then, I sure, I, I was surprised at the depths that Bennett allowed her to go uh, with Tati, especially. Um, you know the conversation she had there. It I was expecting Shara, like dead, not dead Shara, to be like more of a two dimensional cutout of that moment in time, and that she wouldn't have access to the full breadth of memory and emotion and things like that. And so I was really pleased that she did. And we got to have that scene with her, you know, feeding clips to Tati and talking with her. And, you know, and, and having that conversation about why she didn't tell Tati and, yeah. and, and how important their reconnection there was ultimately for the, the, the you catastrophic moment, the, in in this book that uh you know for for anybody who's who's uh unfamiliar with the term you catastrophe it's a it's a term that tolkien um uh created basically the the opposite of of a catastrophe you know it, it's it's the moment when things suddenly take a turn for the better like uh, a the, the moment when everything becomes good again um there you know tolkien you know talked about it he was obviously a, a a deeply religious catholic man and and he talked about how easter the resurrection of jesus christ that you know to him he's like that is the you catastrophe you know, when, when everything is lost and all is dark, and then there is a sudden turn for the better. And and in this book, we have that you catastrophic moment when uh, Sempros gives away the divine power, and and we have this new age that dawns. And all of that is due to the conversations that Shara had with Sigrid and with Tati. And I loved that. I was afraid when, when it was revealed that she was only like, you know, a preserved moment of the past that she was just going to sort of be there as like a two dimensional background, like planner. Oh, I've set all the strings in motion. And, but mm -hmm. it wasn't that it was, she still had 
real character moments with both Sigrid and Tati. And I, I loved that. It was it yeah, was that. something she deserved as a character. Uh, it was something that Bennett, as a writer, deserved to be able to do in the third book of a trilogy after having her be the main character in the first book. Mm-hmm. So I greatly appreciated that. Yeah, not only do I love that, I'll do you one better and explain what it is about that that I love so much. And it's the fact that because of, you know, in terms of in terms of lore, what precisely is happening here is that this is a moment in time. This little moment in time that Shara was. And what this literally shows is that even in that moment, she was ready to do all of this. Mm-hmm. This is still who she was. She yeah. died as her best version of her. Like, that is... I, oh, God damn it, you know. I let Bohanna <laughs> sacrifice himself to a god for me here once, long ago, said Shara. And now I stand before you, or now I stand before yet more sacrifices. It's not right, is it? Shara looks up, the lenses of her glasses reflecting the light of a nearby lamppost. No, it's not. Now it's time for me to give. And that last line of hers. After she mm-hmm. kisses uh, Sigrid on the brow... She'll need guidance. She'll need help. We're all just moments. Well, we're all but moments. And just, oh my god. That, that tie back on that line, we're all but moments. And the fact that for her, literally in this moment, that is exactly, it's so well done. Yeah. I was not a huge fan of Shara. She was okay in book one. I, I just loved everybody around her. I felt that a lot of the same thing about her in book two. Well, she wasn't really in book two, but Mulagesh in book two. Shara, really, I see what it was that you liked about Shara now. I, I am totally on board. Shara's wonderful. It took me a little longer to notice, but she was just a gem, really, yeah. ultimately. Now, let's uh, let's talk about Tati and Malwina. I mean, it's tough okay. to talk about them separately. Uh, yeah, because I mean, even for, last episode, I had them put together. <laughs> yeah, for, so. for clear reasons, they mirror each other in their character arcs. Um, but... Tati I like more than Malwina, nevertheless. Um, maybe because she's unawakened, you know, she's asleep to her divine nature for the majority of the book. And she feels more vulnerable because of that. Uh, she's able to... She's able to develop relationships with people. In a way that Moina can't. The only person Moina really has much of a connection, a relationship yeah. with, is Tavon. She, you know, like she's got a little bit of one with Shara, but we don't really get to see it, and most of their interactions are very business-like. But Tati with Avanya and Tati with Sigrid are just both. Both those relationships are beautiful. Hmm. Excellent, excellent work. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll be talking a little more about uh, Malwina's relationship with Tavon later. Um, I didn't really write down anything about either of these two girls just because I figured we could, you know, get this out of the way in in one go. Yeah, I mean, my favorite parts of Sigrid were Tatiana, and my favorite yes. parts of Tatiana were Sigrid. I agree. That's all I really want to say about Tatiana. That's all I need to. I think. Okay, do you have any other character notes? Because I don't. I have uh, a small, just a tad on Avanya. I have a couple things about Nokov. Okay. I'll, start getting, I'll get Avanya out of the way. Still pleasantly surprised with that character, even though. Yeah, you know, yeah. If you pointed her out to me in my first read back in book one, 
Uh, even if you gave me the slightest hint as to her later importance and complete personality change, I would have been flabbergasted. Completely out of nowhere, this character was in that book, in that in this book, in that regard. I really like her. I do. Yeah, she she did end up being a lot of fun. Uh, did she feel two dimensional to you at all? No, I wouldn't say she felt two dimensional. Okay. Uh, so I don't think so either. Given the character we met in the first book, yeah, it's it's hard to say she's two dimensional when we've seen her live and thrive in two completely different worlds and you know socioeconomic situations. Unless you use that first to just make an aesthetic point about the second, which some people, I, I can, I don't think that at all, but I can see like some people might think she might think she's a little two dimensional. You just gotta, yeah. look. I just the, yeah. the I agree only that thing yeah. I would kind of criticize with her character is that at a certain point, like when we're in her head, she feels a little bit like Mulagesh to me. Okay, that kind of hard bitten. Like, yeah. doesn't want to deal with anything, wants the simple life, you know, like, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I think it may have been a bad thing had she been the main character in this book, but she wasn't. So I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't put off by it. It was just something I kind of noted and I was like, huh. Like, there were a couple points where I was reading and, and really, like, lost in it and found myself picturing Mulagesh in the scene, not Ivanya. Hmm. Interesting. So. Can't say I did that, but I may in the future now that you brought that up. And I am going to be rereading these. Do not get me uh, confused on that. I will. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nokov. Real quick. About Nokov as a villain. I would have preferred that we got some more foreshadowing about his arrival a bit earlier. A couple of small hints. Maybe it would have been awesome in book two. Maybe a vague reference in book one. Or if he had left himself some room to explore that in the future. Then again, you know, I, I only read these books once. For all I know, there is something that I just missed entirely. That's very possible. Uh, but I like this villain, Nokov. I really, really like this villain. He feels so human in, in some very specific ways. In some downright disturbing ways, considering, like, a lot of this super menacing, all-powered, intimidating god entity that he is as a threat, he's still very vulnerable. We see it on so many occasions, like from his crying while he's pounding on the walls of the ship, the SS Salim, to his point of view reflections and uncertainties that we actually get as readers inside his head as he's choosing his Seneschal and his fear of Sigrid, his, uh, his doubt, and then most importantly, his conversation with Olvos. I feel a lot about Nokov that I felt about Radas Mollusk. In, like, in, in a good way, at, that the lack of clear motivation or clear logic, I should say, it's just kind of overshadowed by the human, very human nature of just wanting to fight back against this nebulous wrong that the world has done you. It's so petty. It's so frail. It's so organic. It doesn't need to be rational in this case. And so it works. On paper, I don't know how he did it, but he did. So, he being uh, I agree with a lot of that. Um, my main criticism of Nokov came after his encounter with all this. Okay. Uh, when he became just this, like, monstrous divinity, basically. And I was like, this is much less compelling now. He's more or less just a, a typical faceless force of evil who who has lost a lot of the personality That's that made him interesting um yeah. and 
and and combined with you know at the very end of the scene when Sigurd is meeting with all of us and she she has that kind of cryptic um, uh, last words to him and and she kind of I'm trying to remember what the actual words were where he basic where she basically said like you know uh, time is. As all and time, as always, will remain our deadliest foe. And I was like, "Huh? Is this is this him like indicating that uh, Tatiana is going to be the actual like final evil?" And then the like the next scene, Olvos is is killed by uh, Nokov, and Nokov loses a lot of what makes him Nokov, and just becomes this force. And I'm like, "Oh yeah, this is totally what's happening," because it would be unsatisfying from a reader's standpoint, to have this uh, this antagonist be robbed of what made him interesting and then defeated and have that be the ultimate, you know, climax of the book. So I was like, okay, yeah, this there's going to be some craziness that goes down with the time girls. Hmm, can't say I saw that at all. Yeah, it was like, uh, just, you know, that's something that, I never would have thought of were I not writing books myself, you know, where, where I'm thinking about what is satisfying, what makes a good final showdown, what makes a good conclusion to a book. And there has to be that, that emotional connection. And, and it, if you're going to write a really, really good villain, and I know Robert Jackson Bennett can write good villains cause he's done oh, it before. Yeah. There has to be a certain level of sympathy there. There has to be something that makes you care about taking down the villain. And that's not to say, you know, you have to have a sympathetic villain yeah, for the book to be good. Look at Mollusk in the last book. But if, if you want to have a certain type of story, you do need that. And those are the types of stories he's writing. And so when, when that sympathy, when that personality was wiped from Nokov, I was like, okay there's for sure going to be something more going on. We need that crushing emotional weight to the final showdown. Otherwise, it's going to fall flat after so much emotion is built up over the course of this trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, that was something that I hadn't even considered, if I'm being entirely honest. Um, yeah. My, I mean, I loved... like The, the real last point of Nokov's personality was actually something I had written down before he became this faceless monster and entity for lack of a better term she could have struck him down where he stood she being olvos she could have killed him in an instant yet she didn't he wonders why she didn't he can't understand why she didn't that alone that repetitive confused thought process it's so childlike in nature and innocent in a way but no innocent's not the word naive perhaps I just I love how he felt so genuinely childlike in in a lot of his motivations until again he really lost a lot of his personality at the end there, but on up up until and including that line after his conversation with Olvos I thought like Nokov was an incredible villain, I thought yeah yeah nice so, um, oh it, one one real quick shout out to Mishra badass line that she had on the arrow tram Sigurd pulls out his knife I'm going to kill you now. Mishra spits out blood, and I'm gonna make you work for it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> kind of badass. Really nice, good one. That's the only thing I liked about that character was that one sentence, but it was pretty good. Yeah, 
So I'm done with my character discussions. I'm ready to go into three miscellaneous points that I have before we talk our favorite scenes. What about you? Uh, go for it. Okay. We can't win against the enemy alone, not anymore. We need to call in help. And that's where you come in, Sigurd. You are good at getting into difficult places, and I need you for one last operation to go somewhere very difficult indeed and be our ambassador. Where's that? Into the divine sanctum of the divinity Olvos, says Shara, where you will beg her to help us. Uh, for anybody who's seen Friends all the way through and knows that it's one scene where Joey notices the red sweater and his eyes slowly go all incredibly bug-eyed and wide as like the light start. That was me in that moment looking at the bottom of that page in that last line. I was like, <laughs> it was such a good, like out of nowhere. That was right to the, to the sternum. Such a good punch. I loved it. So good. Nice. Just had to talk about it. Yeah. So my only miscellaneous point is, is really a thematic point ties all the way back through the whole trilogy in in the theme of colonialism and oppression and revolution and the point that Bennett is making in these books. I think the core of these books. And I liked the solution that he landed on here. That it it needed to be this redistribution of power, but not necessarily socioeconomic power. Like, we're, we're still left in a world, I mean, at the end of it, right? Sepur is still the richest power in the world. Mulagash is still, like, you know, somebody we're rooting for is in charge of, like, a committee to deal with all of these new divine people around the world. But the system has been upended. Because it used to be either all the power was concentrated on the continent or all the power was concentrated in Sapor. And now the power is dispersed and it's a different kind of power. It's like, uh, it, even though the world is still full of magic, the world has become a more human place. Because it's, the magic is in the hands of many, many humans. Instead of being in the hands of a few super powerful superhumans, or there's a no magic and all the power lies in the mercantile, you know, uh, uh, stranglehold that Sapor has on the world. So I thought it was a really clever solution to it. And I was also glad that he didn't try to wrap it all up in a neat bow. He made it clear. There are still going to be conflicts. There are still going to be wars. People are still going to be, you know, bad people if they're so inclined. And, and there's still going to be conflict. But the conflict that started all of this, that conflict is gone now. That imbalance of power has been rectified. And now we just deal with human level issues instead of systemic issues. That's where the closure comes from, honestly, for me. Yeah. 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 Um, my second out of third miscellaneous points. Gotta say, I didn't really appreciate the bit of video game physics that we got at one point near the end. Sigrid is doing battle with the Seneschal Silence, and 
that you know, leads him into a trap or her into a trap. And Ivania shoots the Otto's fuel tank, turning this into a Michael Bay oh, production yeah. where fuel tanks just randomly explode when you need them to for no logically sound or scientifically sound reason at all. I was like, come on, Bennett, you are better than that. I trust you. You don't got to fall back on that cheap shit. What the fuck? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You noticed that too? I, I almost did. heard a Wilhelm scream in that moment. <laughs> um, last one Sigrid and his arrival back in Bulikov after his failure with Olvos to summarize what's happening and, and what needs doing I think it was um, they all start like they all start to tell him but then he stops them short let Shara do it she knows how to explain things to me I wish I could explain that slow blossoming wholesome smile that hit me down to my heart when I read those words it's such a great toss aside, and I think easily forgettable moment for those two in their history, or I should say, easily overshadowed for those two. And I, I just, I've also coincidentally been explaining this to people for years now about me and my younger brother. Like we learn a lot faster together than we do on our own separately, and I've been trying to find in a way to like uh, to articulate that for years about why that is, about why we learn so much faster together. If it's a video game or if it's a chemistry course, we learn so much quicker together because I get that. Bennett put that concept together in eight words. Let Shara do it. She knows how to explain things to me. Like, just... I loved it for that. That, that little, quiet, instantaneous moment that those two had. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, that was a that was a nice scene. You know, she, so. she tells him just a, a couple of sentences, and he's like, all right, let's do it. And, yep. and Malwina's like, what the heck? You didn't say anything about it. He's like, because I don't need to know. All I yep. need to know is what I have to do to get you where you need to go. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah, and yeah. with the compartmentalist, my friend Sigrid. So, yeah. favorite scenes? Yeah, and shall we start off with an honorable mention each, or do you yes, want to go right I have in? one okay. particular honorable mention. Shall I go first? Yeah, go for it. Nail it. Nokov and Olvos, their conversation. Nokov being so hesitant in the face of his actual mother. Olvos, so ashamed of herself then and now for... Her love making her too weak. The dread that we have as readers that she chose not to defend herself at all after refusing to help us. She just also goes away quietly and the way her death just like reverberated all over reality. This That's my honorable mention. It, really the conversation is what I want to focus on. Nokov and his confrontation and his questions to Olvos and her just sheer heartbreak and what mm. we know is coming. It was yikes. It was horrifying and heartbreaking, but it needed to happen. So that's my honorable mention. Okay. Well, my honorable mention is the fight on the tram car. Okay. Uh, you know, it's it's a coin flip between this and uh, the just epic set piece in the middle of City of Blades with, oh, dang it, what's his name? The Saint Blades. Yeah. Uh, the oh. Saint. Saint. Like. Uh, Zergit. Zergot? Zergot. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Um, and I want to uh, point out they both happen uh, <laughs> right at the same time in, in the middle of each book. You know, we read. For each of these three books, we read the first nine chapters for part one and then finished the book for part two. And in City of Blades and City of Miracles, chapter 10 was just an insane action set piece. And I found that really fascinating. But more than that, 
they were just awesome. Tons of fun to read. Uh, you know, both times I was like, yeah, I, I would love to see this on the screen. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see, like, I, I was picturing it very, very Van Helsing style for anybody who's seen that movie near the end with all these overhead crane shots all in the sky with these just wires over, like, this fog and this valley and thousands of feet in the air and all this happening, like, with, ah, it was, it was really, really good stuff. And I'm glad you brought up this scene here in your honorable mentions because this, I had a, a part of what led up to this. It was still the tram scene that was my third favorite, so I'll just dive right into that. Oh, nice, yeah. Specifically, it was Sigrid and Tatiana in the Aerotram when she tells him about her memory and the orphanage. <clears throat> and he promises he will stay with her. F- for her. And coincidentally, I'm just now appreciating something, now that I have the context of the end of the book. Something about this scene that I couldn't appreciate at the time, but I can now. Because when I first wrote this down, I, I wrote, end of chapter 10 in my notes. And when I looked it up today for referencing here in my notes on the episode, I saw that the ending of that scene that I'm talking about right now was Sigrid telling Tatiana, and I quote, If you really change, Tati, if something takes out or takes you out and makes you different, I will not let you forget who you are. I will be there to remind you, Tatiana Komade, until you are you. She tells him, I didn't think you were the staying type. And he says, For you, I will stay. You're tired. Sleep here if you wish. She asks him, and you'll really stay? Close your eyes, he says. I'll be here in the morning. Yes. And she closes her eyes. I now have the context to appreciate the real beauty in that scene, and I just want to say thank you, Bennett. That was nice. Yes, and you know what the title of chapter 16 is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, close uh, here in the morning. Close your eyes. I'll be back. Something like that. It's it very chapter similar. sixteen. Is close your eyes. I'll be oh, here yeah. in the morning. Right, because that's like one of the last things he. Yeah. yeah. When he it's, tells her when she walks off on the beach. It, yeah. Well, well, he he tells her that on the ship. When he's ah. like, you know, he wakes up in the middle of his you know recuperation, and she's on the bed crying, and she can't go to sleep, and he. Yeah, there were some beautiful callbacks yeah yeah oh (laughs) so well done so my third favorite scene okay is the end of this book i have two two bits highlighted about a page apart Mm. oh two bits you're gonna take mine okay go ahead sigurd leans against the tree the forest rings with the distant sound of birdsong and the echo of the waves. It's late morning now, the sun reaching the spot in the sky where its beams no longer pierce the pines at that striking angle, but it is still a gorgeous day. A peaceful day. One bereft of threat or danger. I did it, Shara, he thinks, gazing out to sea. We did it. He looks up at the tree above him. A piece of time itself, calcified and slowly accrued, stretching toward the bright blue skies on this beautiful day. He reaches to the side and feels its rough bark, its roots digging down deep into the soil. And what have you seen, I wonder? What have you seen? And what will you see yet? He tries to imagine it. Tries to imagine the world that's past and the world yet to come. The one he had some small hand in making. He looks down. A girl is walking up the shore to him. The sun is bright, reflecting off the waves behind her, 
and it's hard for him to see, but he thinks her hair is blonde. And is she wearing glasses? A woman's voice in his ear, perhaps Shara's, whispering, Can you believe it? Sigrid closes his eye. And then the final lines. She stares at him for a long time, hands on her mouth, tears silently running down her cheeks, the sound of birdsong in her ears. Then she sniffs and nods. All right, she says. All right. She sits beside him. Then she takes his hand in her own, fingers woven tight in his, and she watches the waves in the evening light. I almost want to, to add an edit note, almost. I'm not saying we should. I just want to like add like 10 seconds of reverent silence there. Like, yeah. And that was your third favorite. Yeah. Dude, you just want to get that out of the way before I took it, didn't you? No, I'm just kidding. It's not on my list. No, it, it, I, I actually, there, I really struggled. Um, and, and I don't even know if I should say that's my third favorite. It's one of my three favorite. There, there are just several scenes in this book that touched me, that that really moved me. Yeah, the hand on the mouth and the all right, all right. That was, yeah. that was the the, that was the the one thread too many. You know, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, number two. My number two. Mm-hmm. Tavon and her last stand against Nokov as he's making his all-out assault on her sanctum and she holds him back while they evacuate who little they can. The way she sacrifices herself, throwing them out, and in her last words, Tolvos, I love you, and then just darkness. So chilling, so soul-tearing. I regret that Tavon Ooh. didn't really get very much page time, all considered, and alongside... The rest of this book, I have to say, there are a few other se- there are a few other scenes I should say that I can see others putting ahead on their list ahead of this one. But this is something. There's something about this, something so raw, but it lent to the divine mm. children that we'd only just met and the humanity that they are still capable of expressing. Like, I thought it was lost a little bit amongst the chaos and spectacle of this ending, and so I wanted to make sure that this moment got the recognition that it deserves. And so I put it here in my number two. Devon, in her last stand, in her last words, cut off short. That was, why oh, yay, that was so good. Oh, nice. Yeah, that that scene. I admit that scene didn't, um, you know, impact me too hard. Uh, like you I said, be- I, I, you know, if I'd had more time with Tavon, and if we had more sympathy with Malwina, right. I, yeah. I think but, honestly, I'll put that. I'll, I'll go meta. Right here. I think it's because it's kind of forgettable that really makes it all the more tragic to me. Hmm. Okay. You know, it's 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 a weird feeling because you're right. It, the, we, I, uh, that's what I said before. I wish we had a little more page time with with Tavon or to see that relationship develop a little more. And the fact that we didn't was we were robbed of it. And for me, like, it's just so much more tragic because of it. it she, they, okay. That was a character I think that deserved it. Yeah. Deserved to have more, I should say. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, Your second favorite, my man. Chapter 8. My second favorite scene is cheating a little bit. It is the entirety of chapter 8. 
I forgot we could do the first half again. I always it is. Go ahead. Sigrid and Tati growing their relationship, and Sigrid being a father to her, teaching her to shoot. Their their conversations, their discoveries about each other. Yeah, I had a, I had a couple Progress. of different things again signed uh, or signed highlighted in this section. You know, and did you like her? Tati asks suddenly. My mother, I mean. Sigrid pauses and slowly looks up at her, staring into her large, dark eyes. She was the best person I ever knew, he says. Tati blinks, surprised. Oh. And then a little later. Are you going to kill the people who killed her? Sigrid looks at her for a second. Then he returns to his work, fitting the extractor back into the bolt. I have already done that. And... Oh, and the, the one that just solidified it for me. Why were you crying when you first came here? Asks Tati. What? Says Sigrid, startled. When you first came, an auntie built the fire on the porch for you. I went out to see you, and you were crying. I... He puts his plate down. I was not sure if that really happened. If what really happened? I... Was having a dream. About my daughter. She... She died some time ago. Just these moments of raw emotion and and the the one way nature of it where Tati doesn't understand Sigrid yet and Sigrid doesn't understand Tati yet and so they say things that are powerfully emotional for the other person without realizing it it's just incredible writing in this entire chapter, building a meaningful, profound relationship between two characters in, you know, 20 pages. Like, <laughs> it is brilliant. It is so good. Agreed. I totally forgot we could do scenes out of the first half. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I actually had a, another one that almost made it in from the first half, oh? and that, that was uh, when Sigrid breaks into Muligesh's house. And they oh, have their yeah. little conversation there. But. Oh, yeah. I, again, I totally forgot about that. All right. My favorite scene. Yeah. My very favorite scene. The ascension of Sempros. Or I should say, actually, the descension of Sempros. Because she was a you know, she's the goddess of time, but she was actually walking down the stairs <laughs> during the time of this description. That's why I say descension. It's a woman, tall and noble, bloodless and alien-looking, arrayed in moments seconds bands of fate streams of time from her arms hang all the tides and all the storms of all the seas and all the dawns and sunsets from her back there hangs a cape of all the births and all the deaths both those that have come and those that have yet to be and about her waist is a skirt composed of all the frantic desires that time would not pass by the wish that all these moments however beautiful or brutal would persist and linger and continue. And at the bottom of this skirt is a broad black hem cutting all these wishes short. Yes. Beautiful. I don't, 
I refuse to say anything further because that will spoil this moment. That's all it needs. I will let that that passage speak for itself. Number one for me, like the highest point in anything from Bennett that I've read in terms of his raw literary talent to this day. Save maybe perhaps love, love, defiant love. Between them, those two, these two scenes might make two of my top 10 favorite scenes that we've ever had in our favorite scenes for this podcast. So, oh my God. The raw, like, yeah yeah Yeah, the i i remember reading that scene and thinking like oh yeah he's he's getting to rex uh rex flex the writer muscles i was i was doing a rob there yeah uh, combining two words yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) um but it was the line about the thick black hem cutting all those wishes short that i was like ooh, nice Like, so can, great. Uh, sometimes these guys just find, like, it's, I, I almost imagine it's like a nice stretch. Sometimes, especially when you're, like, early in the morning, you're kind of in that halfway state, and you get that one stretch, you hit that one trigger on that one muscle, and then suddenly your whole body goes, oh, and it feels really good. Mm-hmm. That's what he was doing with his, with his writing there. He hit that one note, <laughs> and it was just I like it. borderline inappropriate for this podcast. Someday I'll, uh, I'll... I'll hit a moment like that with my own writing. Yeah, I can only... If I can ever hit a moment that is half this effective, I will consider myself an accomplished writer. That was... I've had I've had a couple that I, I think are close, but nothing on that level. <laughs> I've had some very short ones that I'm proud of, but nothing on that scale yeah. and that consistency with that description. And, oh, God, that description of Ephraim Pangui in book one still sticks out to me. The passage mm-hmm. about him feeling everything with his hands and how about there with Ephraim Pangui there is never enough of the world to experience like just so good oh and the yep. epigraph about the gods they're cruel because they let us hope just this man is good he is so good I I of the total running time of all three or oh, six of these episodes I should say I would say I spent 40% of it bitching I really should not have like <laughs> honestly it's like the negative is only about five percent of what i consider for this book this is still an amazing series amazing series yeah you know i've been thinking uh as we read through this maybe after we finish the gap cycle because i'm not sure what we're gonna cover after the gap cycle um but after we finish that we may have to do some sort of bonus episode where we sit down and try to rank or rate all the series we've covered on Inking Out Loud so far. Ooh. Well, we are, yeah, okay. Yeah. I am down yeah. for this. It's going to be tough, but it'll, it'll be fun. Conclusions? Any, uh... Well, I still have my favorite scene. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I thought, uh, for some reason, I thought we both jived on that one, and we, I just got them both out of the way in once. Go ahead, hit me with something. He smells the cold north breezes and the salty air. How long has it been, he thinks, since the winds of this place have passed through my lungs? The shore is alight with construction, with industry, with life and commerce and movement. It is no longer the miserable, brutal hovel he remembers, not the crude, lethal place it once was. It is a place people travel miles to come to, not one they avoid. My daughter did that, says Sigrid weakly, nodding at the lights on the shore. She did that. She made all that happen. 
Yeah. Old Man Sigrid is really such a heartbreaker, isn't he? Yeah. And... I don't know. The The more we went through this book, especially, Dude, the more I'm, I'm like... I'm my eyes right now. Just stop it. The more I'm like, Fuck. look, Signe... Uh, rapidly became one of my favorite characters I've ever read. Like... Oh my goodness. Way, way up the list. She, yeah. And I love the way she was treated... Her legacy. There's just like, oh. You can just, you feel the fraternal love and pride. Fraternal, paternal love and pride. And even though you aren't Sigrid, you feel the pride for her as well. And that was, you know... You know, I mentioned the the callbacks in the final chapters. You know, I said chapter 16, it's called Close Your Eyes, I'll Be Here in the Morning. But chapter 15, Mm. one big push. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that is how you tie it full circle. That is how you end a trilogy. This guy knows what's up. He does. He knows what's up. He does. He's millennial <laughs> youth. Yes. Oh. Like. What do you think of the odds of, the, of us getting this guy on the podcast someday? Just for oh, a, Ooh. I, I hadn't considered that. That might be something to look into. That would be one of my top three names. If I could have three people on this podcast. Well, I can, yeah. I can say right now, there is already some groundwork being laid to bring... Uh, to bring some authors on the show, um, and and as we move into the outro, maybe I'll just make this, you know, just another pitch for our Patreon. Uh, one of the the hiccups holding us up is is our technology at our hands. Um, we could bring authors on right now, but we would kind of have to make them jump through a few hoops technologically. Um, and and I. I am not confident enough in my importance in the world to to ask authors to deal Download with all of our me. technical, yeah. you know, uh, hurdles, and and so we're looking at some new uh, some new software for the podcast, and unfortunately, it is pretty expensive for what we need out of it. Uh, so, if if you want to hear some really fun authors on the podcast um, and and want to help us make that happen please support us on patreon that's uh that's where that's gonna go um it's it's gonna open up some really cool doors for us in the future and like i said i have i have some feelers out i've been laying some groundwork uh with a couple of different authors uh authors we have already covered on the podcast so uh let your imaginations run wild on who those might be yeah, and let the record show that's not all you get with that. I mean, like I said earlier, you get short fiction monthly from Drew or myself. You get early access days in advance on, on episodes. You get access to, like, what? How many short episodes are we going to have exclusive by now? We're in the early 20s at this point. Oh, it's least, been... Right? Yeah, it's, it's been, been two years. Two years. Podcast, uh, so. It'll be two years May, I think, that we launched our Patreon. 
I don't remember when we started doing the short episodes, but it's, yeah, it's like 23, 24 at this point. Yeah, yeah. We've got a lot of extra content on there. And, of course, you know, newsletters, that kind of fun stuff. So, and, hey, if you want, if you have a book that you really, really are rearing to hear our opinions on, there is a list where we put our patron recommended. Yeah. Divine Cities was one such patron recommendation. This is exactly, I think this has been the best patron recommended book. Ooh, I, I cannot... I cannot deny that. Uh, I've yeah. enjoyed. I have enjoyed. Uh, you know the the patron recommendations. I mean, hey, um, look at it this way. Think about what this patron got for his money. He paid us for a book, and we did six episodes on yeah. three books because <laughs> yeah. of it. But that's just because that's how good Bennett is. But yeah, yeah, this was uh, this was pretty freaking awesome covering this. So trilogy. you want us to cover anything, and you want us to cover Fifty Shades of Grey? Oh. You might hear that in the future on a short episode. Yeah, if you want to torture us, I'm, that's <laughs> that is also on the table. Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so this has been episode one hundred fifteen. Nailed it, one fitting of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we are going to be visiting the second book in a series we have already covered uh, the first book of, and that is. The Texcalan books by Arkady Martin. Next week we will be doing the first nine chapters of A Desolation Called Peace. Screw So yeah, check in on that one. Uh, it's gonna Ooh. be it's gonna be something. I have already read the book this year. Uh, I I was lucky enough to get an advanced review copy, but uh, Rob, unless I'm mistaken, you have not read it yet. No, I have not. That is a noperino from me, neighbor. Yeah, so uh, we're gonna have some we're gonna have some really fun discussions on that one. So check out that series, and if you haven't read it, it's uh, it's definitely worth your time. Uh, Memory Called Empire won several awards, you know, Book of the Year uh, when it came out, and uh, and it's very very good. But I can't believe I just said fucking no Perino. <laughs> <laughs> it was one word I would not have expected to come out of my mouth. Oh my gosh. And actually, before I finish off this outro, we haven't done the final draft yet. Oh my goodness! How diddly, neighbor! <laughs> oh man! Well, for, for me, I am excused. I'll tell you why. Because it's always the same. You know, I'm a month and a half into my sobriety now, so I'm still drinking Dasani water. Yeah. Okay. Some good well, dihydrogen monoxide, as I'm now learning in my chemistry classes. But <laughs> yeah, well, as I mentioned earlier, I did bring on two beers, and maybe that's why. Uh, uh, maybe that's definitely why I nearly forgot this, because not only did I bring on two beers, but they are hefty boys. Uh, hefty the first boys. one um, is a barrel-aged Imperial Stout from Weldworks Brewing Company in Greeley, Colorado. It's 14.8% alcohol by volume. And uh, no, I did not drink the whole bottle. Uh, my wife split it with me. but Nice. Uh, but this was my original plan for the episode, where last last week I brought on Starriest Night from Weldworks. Uh, you know, uh, imperial style with like hazelnut and coconut and chocolate and all this delicious stuff. And I was talking about, you know, how it thematically aligns with Nokov and, and this this like primal first night and, and all that. And I was like, well, I am very much expecting... We're going to hit a point, maybe 75-80% of the way through this book, where Nokov is going to just take over, and it is going to be pure night. 
going to be midnight. And so I had Medianoche from Weldworks, which is their most celebrated beer uh, for those who speak Spanish. It means midnight. Yeah. Uh, This beer is one of the most highly regarded uh, craft beers in America. Um, It's won, you know, Great American Beer Festival gold medals. It's, it's, massively popular uh, every time they do a bottle release of this it sells out in like two minutes when they do the online you know link uh i there have been some variants of it that sold out in less than a minute i mean it's crazy the the amount of hype this gets Damn. and thankfully i live just down the road from Weldricks, so i have a cooler full of different variants of this and this <laughs> particular one is the 2019 19 month Midianoche. So it was aged in bourbon barrels for 19 months. No adjuncts, no no frills, just beer thrown in a barrel, aged, and uh and and it lets all of that all of that character come through. And you know, it's been it's been about a year and a half since I got this bottle. Some of the bourbon from it has definitely fallen off. It's not as hot alcoholic as it used to be. But it's still very woody, and there's uh, it's kind of developed this like uh, dark, like black licorice almost flavor in the finish. Hmm. Uh, still very, very good though. But because I have exacting standards, I had to oh, bring on something uh, more thematically appropriate. Drinking for two. But because I am a crazy person, I brought on another. Imperial Stout, aged in bourbon barrels. This one was aged in a, uh, in, or it's a blend of Imperial Stouts aged in Heaven Hill and Angel's Envy bourbon barrels for three years. This is from Crooked Stave Brewing Company, 13.8% alcohol by volume. I think I just heard your liver cry. <laughs> And it is called Gift of Time. Oh, damn it. Son of a bitch, of course. Shit, that was a good one. God damn it. That was well played. I, why am I surprised by this? Yeah. So this Ooh, is boy. this is Gift of Time, and it is the Black Friday edition. Uh, <laughs> so good. Which uh, this, I believe, was released Black Friday 2019. Um... Man, it is super good. Uh, I think it's better than the Medianoche. It doesn't have the really thick, um, heavy body of Medianoche. It's still plenty thick. I mean, look at this. It is pitch black. Yeah, I mean, Um, you're drinking ink. But the barrel, because it spent 36 months in bourbon barrels instead of 19, it's, uh, it's got a lot more of that, like, bourbon sweetness. A lot, a lot of That's like dark chocolate, That's roasty my style malts. right there. And then there's this really nice, like grain, like almost like wheat flavor that balances out that that like heavy booziness to it. It's it is a lot to drink, but it is really darn good. Mm. Yeah. So, 
on that note, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos, right here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>